City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. On behalf of our board and our president, Doug Leeds, we welcome you to our Working in the Theatre Seminars. We're being broadcast by CUNY TV from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The Wing is best known as the creator of the Tony Awards that honor excellence on Broadway. But in addition, we provide annual grants to New York-based theaters and scholarships to theater students. We also broadcast a weekly interview program with theater personalities called Downstage Center with XM Satellite Radio. All our educational programs are free on demand at our website, americantheaterwing.org. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Annenberg Foundation for their very generous support of these programs. Today, we'll look at the art of puppetry as it is increasingly used on theater stages, combining puppets and humans and creating new approaches to this ageless art form. I'm very pleased to introduce the moderator of today's seminar, the executive director of the American Theater Wing, Howard Sherman. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. As somebody who has worked my entire career in what I can only refer to today as human theater, I am endlessly fascinated by the opportunities, the artistry, and the achievements that can be done with puppets and puppet theater. As someone who is of the age in which my knowledge of puppetry is almost wholly defined by Sesame Street and The Muppet Show, the continual revelations that I find in the world of puppetry are incredibly fascinating. And indeed, we're continuing to see the worlds of human theater and puppet theater merge and join forms in a variety of different ways. So today's panel will hopefully illuminate some of what I'm finding so fascinating and I believe everybody else will. So let me first introduce our panelists. Beginning on my right, Basil Twist is the creator of Symphony Fantastique, which toured internationally and is currently playing off-Broadway at Dodger Stages. He developed the puppetry for Paula Vogel's The Long Christmas Ride Home and is director of the Dream Music Puppetry Program at Here Arts Center. Pam Arciero is artistic director of the O'Neill Puppetry Conference in Waterford, Connecticut, where she directed the Emerging Artists Program for five years. She's a principal puppeteer on Sesame Street and has worked on numerous children's programs, including Between the Lions and Eureka's Castle. Roman Pasca has directed original adaptations of works by Yates, Strindberg, and Lorca, and his most recent work, Dead Puppet Talk, was seen at the kitchen in September. He will direct Souls of Naples for theater for a new audience this spring. And from 1999 to 2002, he was director of the International Puppet Theater Institute in France. 
Cheryl Henson is the president of the Jim Henson Foundation and on the board of directors of the Jim Henson Company. Cheryl executive produced the award-winning and highly influential Henson International Festival of Puppet Theater from 1992 to 2000, and she continues to lead the Foundation's grant-making programs to support contemporary puppetry. Rick Lyon has played a pivotal role in the development of the Broadway musical Avenue Q since its earliest workshops as both puppet designer and performer. His TV, film, and theater credits include Sesame Street, Men in Black, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles films. And he writes scripts, music, and songs for his own company, The Lion Puppets. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Before we start, our discussion. I was very struck by some words I heard recently and want to share with you all a bit of tape on the topic of puppets and puppet theater. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Bill Irwin. Puppet talk has become increasingly riddled with anxiety. The very expressions puppet and puppet theater suggest a heterogeneous range of phenomena that continue to increase and multiply with virtually no consensus as to what exactly this slippery thing we call a puppet is. It is clearer now what we mean when we say man than what we mean when we say puppet. And the concept of man has troubled great minds for centuries. There is, after all, something profoundly disturbing about a thing that persists in eluding precise definition. It could, of course, uh, be argued that with no consensus on definitions, we lack the methodology for describing or discussing this phenomenon. But even if we don't know what a puppet is, we know that there are these things we call puppets. As you might have guessed, that is not Bill Irwin just sitting around expounding on puppetry. That's actually an excerpt from Roman's piece, Dead Puppet Talk, which uh, I mentioned played at the kitchen last month. But as I watched that piece, it, it encapsulated all of the things that I was starting to think about for this panel. So what I'd like to just start off with is to ask everyone on the panel, what, what do you see as the profound difference between human theater and puppet theater? Have I already made an assumption that there is a profound difference? Or where do those worlds merge? And Roman, since we uh, started with a clip from, from your show, I, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, when you say human theater and puppet theater versus puppet theater, it suggests that puppet theater is in human theater. And I think that that's, uh, that's maybe a good place to start. It's, it's uh, also one of the uh, uh, puppeteers are, are very puppeteers are very uh, insistent about the fact that uh, there is, in fact, a human being behind most puppets. And, uh, and it's, it's, really, uh, it's really an art form that, uh, that does involve, always involve human intervention, particularly in the theater. 
And, um, and I think that uh, to, to talk about the differences, one should also talk about the, the, the similarities, not the similarities, but the, the, the way in which puppet theater is theater and not, and not really, um, and not something, something else, and certainly not something in competition with the notion of a human theater. Basil, now you're, interestingly, we're talking about, I, I set it up as humans and puppets, and of course you've got this remarkable show, Symphony Fantastique, which doesn't attempt to even represent a human or animal form. It's all shapes and motion. How, do, how does that play into the, to the human versus puppet discussion that I set up? Um, well, I, I mean, I think, as Roman pointed out, it's uh, part of the excitement of a theatrical experience like Symphony Fantastique or any puppetry performance is that there is, it is live, there are um, performers backstage, even in, in my show you, you can't see them, but, um, but they're there, it's happening live. And uh, I guess a little in response to what um, Professor Irwin said, the, um, in, in, I think in my show, because I'm trying to uh, use puppets that are not um, our standard definition of puppets in that they don't look necessarily like humans, but what's happening on stage, there is an act of bringing something to life. Some sort of inanimate uh, material is brought to life, so to speak, on stage, and that's what makes it a puppet show. Is there something about the interaction of the live human figure with the puppet figure that creates particular opportunities? Obviously, Avenue Q has that going on in a way that on Broadway we've not seen. And to what you were both saying in response to my narrow puppetist question, because it's almost, <laughs> um, you know, what, what is done in terms of do you as a performer, Rick, who is visible the entire time you perform in Avenue Q, are you trying to be seen? Do you, is, it, is it because of the particular puppet style that's been chosen? Do you, how do you relate or are you meant to recede? Obviously there's a human behind the puppet. He's the guy who's got his arm in it. Right. Um, how, how, does, how does that play into your performance? Are you trying to recede or are you trying to be present along with the puppet? Oh, I think it's absolutely necessary for the puppeteer to be present, um, especially in the style of puppetry that we're using in Avenue Q. The, it's a tandem performance. The, the puppet is part of the character and the human being is also part of the uh, character. Um, each aspect of that performance informs the other. Um, the humans being on stage with the puppet you know, the puppet doesn't have movable features except for the mouth. Uh, its eyebrows don't, it, it don't, don't go up and down. It doesn't have, you know, eyes that blink or anything like that. It cannot express emotion in a way that we have codified, you know, expressing emotion with a human face. So the performer being on stage with the puppet can do all those things, and it sort of informs the, the puppet's performance. And by the same time, at the same time, the, the puppet is the character, so informs what the human being is doing on stage. So it's, it's really a very symbiotic relationship. One doesn't succeed without the other. Um, 
I think there are degrees of being present on stage that everybody is at slightly different places in, in Avenue Q, and that's perfectly valid too. I, as a performer, am very aware that you know people aren't paying their money to see me. They want to see the puppet. Um, so I, I tend to focus more of the, uh, the attention to the performance on the puppet. That's just my sort of personal philosophy about that. I know other puppeteers in the, in the cast feel more you know, uh, present themselves. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance. But one does not exist without the other. And I, and I just want to hasten to say we were talking about you know, puppet theater versus human theater. Avenue Q is not puppet theater. It is a musical that uses puppetry in the telling of its story, uh, and it's a stylistic choice. It is not puppet theater. It is not conceived as a piece of puppet theater. It is a musical theater piece for Broadway that uses, like The Lion King, uses puppetry in the telling of the story. Yeah. I sure. just wanted to interject also that this whole relationship, the, the visible relationship between the puppeteer and the puppet is a relatively new thing. And that it's something that people in the puppet world and puppeteers have been fascinated by for years, but is, has been behind the scenes. And that it used to always be with Sesame Street characters, with Muppet characters, that you would never show the puppeteer. It was very important that the audience, particularly a kid audience, not be, con not be given that opportunity to be confused that the puppet is what's alive, but also certainly with Punch and Judy shows going way back that the puppeteers are back. Even in Bunraku, the puppeteers wear hoods. It's, it's a relatively new phenomenon to show the puppeteers. And I think that some of it might come from the puppeteers' fascination with being able to watch the performers perform the puppets. And that we just loved being able to watch Frank Oz and Jim Henson performing their characters. And there is something really fascinating about, about that relationship that now seems to have come to the stage. Well, and it's a continuation of, of a sort of a general trend in modern theater, the sort of deconstruction. Yeah. We're, we're laying bare the technology. Mm -hmm. Of the show, I mean, this goes back, you know, many years in terms of like, you know, you think of early Brecht um, performances where, oh, they had the lights so that you could mm -hmm. see where they were on stage, and oh, you saw pieces of backstage scenery and stuff like that. It's sort of a continuation of that. Um, it's it's not new. One of the things about Avenue Q that makes it new is that it's a style of puppet, as Cheryl indicated, that we have not seen performed that way uh, live on stage before. And one of, the, one of the gratifying things about Avenue Q for me is we're taking a style of puppet that has become sort of irrevocably linked with children's entertainment, and we're giving it back to an adult theater audience. And for me, that's one of the exciting things about it. Uh, can I just do yeah, one, one more? Just that I think that it's interesting when you talk about really exposing how something's done. That I feel that in some way this move towards low-tech puppetry and really showing how it's all done, um, also like the bread and puppet style of theater, just made out of uh, paper mache um, puppets that are very low-tech is in some ways a reaction to all of the brilliant high-tech puppetry and animation computer-generated things that are available on television and film, and that a lot of people want to embrace it. And what's sort of magical about live puppet theater, seeing something come to life on stage right in front of you in a way that you just feel that it's coming to life, but you know perfectly well that the, the puppeteer is right there. It's not trying to fool you much more organic. Yep. I think that's one of the interesting things about that 
uh, Avenue Q has brought is that organic feeling, you know, that, that you see the puppeteer, you see the physical movement that's creating that, and it's no longer the big super special effects. This is actually how it's done. Mm -hmm. And also, I think one of the things that's been happening is very judicious use of revealing the puppeteer and revealing the puppet. I know in, in Moby Dick, for example, your puppeteer often becomes a character, fades away, does the puppet, then once again returns as a different character. Mm -hmm. That all enhances our storytelling, which ultimately, to me, what we do with theater, whether it be puppet or human, is we are trying to tell a good story. Mm -hmm. We are trying to get across the ideas that are inherent in all of us that we want to share. And, you know, sometimes this, this puppet theater versus human theater thing gets going pretty big. And I don't think there is a difference. I think we're all doing theater. It's just our form that we choose very often is a puppet, is an inanimate object. And how do we make that object live and breathe? And whether we show the puppeteers or not, the important thing is that that object is communicating to the audience mm. our ideas and what we want to get across. So with that, let me say that it seems that America, compared to most of the world, has pigeonholed puppetry. It's not as broadly thought of as, as the other forms of expressing narrative. Um, and it has been pigeonholed into being thought of as, as mostly for children. Roman, you were involved in the Institute in France. Basil, you study as well at a, a different organization in France. And Cheryl, you have this great overview of puppetry, both in the U.S. and internationally. What, is, what do you think has contributed to puppetry not having the same foothold in America that, it's, that it has in so much of the world, the Asian countries, the European countries? Well, I would disagree that it doesn't have the same foothold. I, I, there is more, I, I just, you know, as someone who's just spent four years uh, living in, in Europe, uh, it's, uh, it is true that there is more puppet theater in Europe than there is per capita or whatever uh, than there is in the United States, but, it's, but it, that doesn't mean that it's more uh, interesting or more experimental or whatever, or that the audiences are necessarily more attuned. Puppet theater, um, I mean, any of our preconceptions about puppet theater here are inherited from the, you know, the European or Eurocentric uh, situation. And um, uh, it, it is true that in Asian countries where there are, you know, there are thousands of years of tradition of, uh, you know, that, that have produced very evolved forms of puppet theater, there's a different perspective. But um, I think, you know, I think what's true for puppet theater in the United States is tr very much true for theater in the United States. It's, it's not, uh, it's just as hard to, um, uh, to talk about the, uh, we, we don't have national theaters in every major city, for example, so uh, naturally we also don't have puppet theaters in every major city. So I think it's, um, um, uh, it's a conversation I've been having for a good 20 years now, the, the notion that somehow the, the, the grass is greener in Europe, it's not necessarily. Mm -hmm. And some of the most uh, important work that's, that's really you know, influenced European uh, puppet theater in the past uh, couple of decades has in fact come from the United States. Cheryl, what do you think you? that would be? When you say that, I'm very curious. Oh, I don't want to name any names. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to add, actually, in agreement with that, in Asia, I taught at the Hong Kong Academy for Performing Arts, and I brought a Chinese shadow puppet that I had made in puppet school, which is a very old form of puppetry, is Chinese shadow puppetry. It goes way back, 
None of my Chinese students had ever seen Chinese shadow puppetry. Mm. They didn't know what it was. And this is a performing arts school. They had no idea. They knew Peking Opera very well, but they did not know anything about China. And I felt a little like coming to America and teaching kids about baseball, you know, because <laughs> I was going to China to teach them about Chinese shadow puppets. And it was pretty interesting to me that we sort of assume, because they do have a very long tradition, that everybody knows it and that it's well supported. That is not necessarily true. There is the long tradition to, to draw from. But just as you said, sometimes it's not supported. There aren't state puppet theaters. There aren't, you know, in, especially in China, there was not that much of it. I was very surprised. I would add to what, what the other uh, point that you seem to be making about the association with children's theater and children, uh, that, that's also an inherited notion from the European tradition. And uh, of course, there are reasons for it, but, um, but um, which are probably too vast to want to go into here. But, but uh, it's, uh, the idea that we have a sense of a, a distinction between children's theater and what we call adult theater is, um, I mean, to my mind, it's a little bit it's a little bit erroneous. You know, we, we, I mean, yes, we have children that is more suitable for children because the themes are not too difficult and there's no sex, nudity, or violence, but, but, um, uh, but it's still theater. And I think that uh, uh, I see this as, I see it as a, a, personally as a very positive sign that things, something that we associated with, with a children's audience has now begun to make its way into, uh, into the, the common theater uh, vocabulary. So let's jump back now. How do you start to be a puppeteer? Very simply. I know that we have people who have graduate degrees in puppetry on the panel. People may not even realize that you can get such degrees both here and abroad. But where does this start? Rick, where do you start? Well, I, I'm, uh, my story is very typical of many, many puppeteers uh, of my generation. The first puppetry that I saw was on TV. Um, Kukla Fran and Ollie, Bert Hillstrom and his wonderful work was some of the first puppetry I ever, ever saw on TV. And even other children's shows like uh, Captain Kangaroo, like Mr. Moose was one of the first puppets I ever saw on TV. Um, and, it was, and it was something that, you know, immediately fascinated me. And your father's early work on the, uh, the variety shows, you know, the Hollywood Palace and the Ed Sullivan show, that's the first exposure that I had to puppetry. The first live puppet show I ever saw was a really bad Pup and Ju uh, Punch and Judy show at the 1964 World's Fair here. Uh, but despite the fact that it was not really great theater, it was still unbelievably exciting to me because it was live. And it was the first time I'd seen a puppet live. And that was like an, 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 a life-changing uh, event. I don't know, how do people, you know, where do proclivities for uh, human existence come from? I don't know, it was something that always attracted me right away. And I think one of the reasons that it attracted me was because it, once I found out more about it and started studying, you know, well, who are these people? How do they do what they do? It encompasses an incredibly broad range of artistic disciplines. Uh, the average puppeteer is creating his own material and designing his puppets and creating his puppets and making it and, and painting the scenery and making his set and ultimately gets to perform as well. And it's uh, really good for someone who has attention deficit disorder. <laughs> so, um, so I started my little pathetic efforts in puppetry very early on and strictly a hobby. I'm actually a fairly, I was fairly late to coming to it professionally. I didn't really start professionally until I was 28. And how did you make the switch from being 
to, to becoming a professional puppeteer? Had you had specific training, or was it that you sort of trained yourself in your room? I was pretty much self-taught, and I, I think a lot of puppeteers go through the same thing. I was just sort of by the skin of my teeth, whatever I could sort of gather from books and what I saw other people doing. The first time I ever met somebody else who called themselves a puppeteer was when I went to the O'Neill. used to have a, a puppetry program there that was affiliated with the National Theater Institute, the Institute for Professional Puppetry Arts, which is a program that sadly no longer exists. But that was the first time I ever met somebody else who called themselves a puppeteer. Up until then, I was completely self-taught, and it was just really a, a hobby. And it really sort of just took me over. I think it chose me rather than me choosing it. Um, it was something that I could just do 24-7 and, uh, and, and never get tired of. Um, and that's, that's a story with a lot of puppeteers. And th fortunately now, somebody who has interest in puppetry can go and get training. There are places that you can get that kind of training, uh, like the, uh, the puppetry conference at the O'Neill, uh, at the University of Connecticut, at um, um, no. Janie's program out in CalArts. Well, let me ask Pam, because you are a graduate of the only degree-granting graduate program in puppetry in the United States. I believe it's the only graduate degree. Yeah, gra I think there I said, there is yes, the graduate degree program. And of course, you do run this conference at the O'Neill Theatre Center in Connecticut, which over the years, we should say, has always had a relationship to puppetry, which goes back to the fact that among the founders of the O'Neill were Rufus and Margot Rose, the creators of the Howdy Doody puppets, and I gather mentors to your father. Uh, friends. Friends. Yeah. friends. So, so tell, us, tell us about the program now and about the programs that there are. Um, when I went through the University of Connecticut, there was only two schools. The other one was UCLA, and they only took two puppeteers a year into that program. I was actually accepted into both, but decided to go to UConn because it was a much broader program. Um, and UConn has continued. They're a wonderful program. They accept about 25, I believe it's up to. They have about 25 to 30 people going through both undergraduate and graduate levels. And there's multiple graduate degrees you can get from there as well. And it's a wonderful program. We study everything. We study directing. We study lighting. We study costume design. You study dance, you study acting, you study singing, you study everything. And that's what it takes to be a puppeteer very often. You are, as Rick said, one of the reasons we become puppeteers is because we like to do so many things. We all seem to be capable in a, a variety of areas to do them pretty well. Sometimes the jack-of-all-trades master of none comes to mind, but, <laughs> but fortunately we're pretty good at all of those things. Um, the O'Neill program grew out of the fact that on a sort of more professional level, there, there really isn't, there wasn't some place you could go and intensively study um, puppetry. And so one of our main goals is to develop new works for the puppet theater. That's one thing, to have actual wonder, you know, shows coming out of here, and uh, Roman has been one of our guest artists there, um, developing shows there for us. And we basically, the, pro, the conference is the, uh, I, it's one of my favorite experiences. We take about 25 to 30 uh, participants, and within the context of a week, you will work with a guest artist, or you will be your own independent artist, and within about five days, you come out with a show that you're performing at the end of the week uh, for the, the community and for the conference. And it's, it's, it's sort of an accelerated puppet program that you get to go to once a year. And like you said, you don't meet other puppeteers. Either. Where do you go and find a group of puppeteers to learn your skill? There's nowhere to go, and the O'Neill provided this. There are puppet festivals with the Puppeteers of America as well, which are very good, but it's not intensive. And what the O'Neill does is we really try to give you tools to go out 
And, and our, our dual goal is to develop puppet works and to raise the standards of puppetry to make sure that, that good work is being developed and, and getting out there and that people learn these skills. There's, there's just no other avenue. And that's a joy of running the O'Neill, is that mm -hmm. we're able to present that to very creative people. I think that one of the things that is very special about puppetry is that people do come to it from so many different disciplines. And that in doing the Puppet Festival, we looked at you know, hundreds of different puppet artists from all around the world. And some of the most exciting things is the differences. Um, an artist like Janie Geiser or Theodora Skipitaris coming from art, from being flat artists or visual artists, um, people who are choreographers, Alice Farley, that coming from the dance direction, coming from a text-based piece, that there are so many different directions that people can come from in order, in order to be a puppeteer. Because I think that one of the, the wonderful things about puppetry is that it can't, it's not really easily defined, that it can be almost anything. And, um, and that's really exciting about it. It's especially, it's especially a, a meeting place of the visual arts and the performing arts. And I, I know that was one of the, the, the real um, incentives to me when I was first experimenting with puppet theater was the discovery. I began as a theater person, but the, the discovery of the whole visual aspect of it was, was very important. And, and I think it's true that the whole uh, performance art movement then in the, uh, in the 19, particularly the 1980s, visual theater of the 70s, performance art of the 80s, has really given a huge uh, push to, uh, to puppet theater and it's also get made us start talking about puppet theater uh, as something that's very, very uh, much broader in scope than, than the notion of a theater in which little figures are you know, little humanoids, if you like, are, are uh, simulating uh, human beings. I think Basil shows an example of that, where shapes and forms have, have taken the place of, uh, of characters. Well, as we talk, as you talk about shapes and forms, something Cheryl said reminded me actually of a piece I saw by your sister Heather, um, which was one of the earliest puppet pieces that I had seen, um, in which I watched it and I thought to myself, how is this different from dance? And even as, as I set up this probably fallacious relationship or, or oppositional relationship between human theater and puppet theater, I am struck that when I saw Basil's piece, it is like watching shapes dance. As I said, your sister's work very much had people doing what, what I would look at more as modern dance than puppetry. How do you, how do you develop the discipline all of the disciplines that are worked at. Rick listed, you know, that you're the performer, you're the writer, you're the, you build the puppets. How does, how do you come to that? Basil, what, what was your experience? Well, I uh, started as a puppeteer very young. I mean, as a child, I was heavily influenced by Sesame Street, as so many of my generation were. And actually my, it's also in my family, so my mother was a puppeteer when I was a kid. She had a sort of, uh, children's puppet company and I just started making my own puppets and um, it was mostly uh, so it was the uh, m more the building thing that I liked I was uh, very shy as a child so it was also a way for me to uh, get attention but without drawing too much attention to myself mm -hmm. which I think lots of puppeteers will tell you is the case um, and uh, and then I um, came to New York and worked with uh, a number of different artists and eventually had this extraordinary experience where I went to a, I had a, a training um, in France at this uh, school in France. Um, and, uh, and at that school I, I was taught, um, again, we covered kind of 
it was like a, you know, a spectrum of performance and building and uh, uh, music and dance and movement and uh, voice and all the different puppetry techniques. Um, so I had a, you know, I mean, I think everybody has <laughs> their different paths. I feel like I was really lucky that I found um, a training program because I know that most puppeteers do just find their way. They're, they're drawn to a certain puppeteer. I remember there was a magnificent puppeteer named Bob Hartman in San Francisco where I grew up and, um, and I used to go see his shows all, all, all the time. And, uh, and I know he taught me so much. And you're drawn to, you see people's work and you just go and uh, try and learn more. Roman was also a teacher of mine, someone whose work I saw and I was curious about. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of puppeteers work. They, they see work that interests them and they gravitate towards it. I was lucky enough to have a training program that, that supported that in addition to it. But um, uh, it's really uh, like people find their way. And I think that's why puppetry is, is so different because everybody finds their own path to it. Well, and to go back to what Roman was saying in, in conjunction to what you were just asking, what's, what's the difference? What makes, you know, what made Heather's piece a, a puppet piece rather than a dance piece? And I think it is, as Roman just briefly touched on, it's that in a piece of puppet theater, the, the uh, visual thing, the, the physical thing that is the puppet is the focus. It's the central uh, methodology for telling the story or presenting the piece as opposed to it being an aspect of or just a little part of. Mm -hmm. It's the primary venue, it's the primary conduit for the performance and that's, you know, if you want to define puppet theater, that, that would be as close of a definition as that I can come to, is that the focus is not on a person or a dance or whatever. The focus is on that visual element that is the puppet, whether it's a rod puppet or a string puppet or a hand puppet or whatever it is. And that's sort of that sort of, you know, splitting hairs thing that we're talking about. That if, if a thing is a puppet theater piece, then, then the main focus of it is this object, which is a piece of, you know, craft, uh, a sculptural object, whatever it is, yeah. that is the center of, of the device. Um, when we were producing the International Festival of Puppet Theater, this came up very often, you know, is it a puppet piece? Is it a theater piece? How much puppetry does it need to have in it to really make it a puppet theater piece? And one th question we just kept coming back and asking ourselves is, does it, is it, does it need to be done with puppets? Can you do this piece with human actors just as well as with puppets? And if so, then just do it with human actors. It, it needs to have something special about the piece itself that is trying to convey whether it's the story or the concepts that the ideas are somehow beyond the everyday human world and everyday human interactions. And what is special about why does it need to be puppets? Um, and if you can't really say that, then you should just go ahead and do it with, with people. Well, like Basil's piece is such a good example yeah. of that. It is so visual, and it's and it's an abstraction. You can't you can't deal with the human form. You can't deal with those same kind of abstract ideas uh, and those abstract movements and so forth that you can deal with. You know, in, in a piece like Basil's, um, a person waving his arms around <laughs> in a tank of water would look pretty silly. Um, 
But there might be an audience but for it's it, but it's that <laughs> experience entirely. I like there's that club downtown that, no. Um, so, so the, the key to, for me is like that visual thing. It's that abstraction, it's that reduction. A puppet is, by its very nature, an abstraction, a reduction, a, a, um, a I don't concept, know. an idea. Yeah. Something that's boiled down to its very essential nature. When a human being walks out on stage, even given the willing suspension of disbelief that is at the heart of all theater, when a human being walks out on stage, intellectually, I know that, well, you know, this guy's name is not Bob, it's Frank, and he lives at home, and he has to commute in every day, and he brushes his teeth. Uh, there's just there's so much information that I know about this human being. When a puppet walks out on stage, it is what it is. It's not pretending to be something else. It is what it is. And so it's an abstraction, a reduction. Um, and there are things that you can do with puppets because of that that you just can't do from, for, with humans. Um, they have too much baggage. No, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just yeah. wanted to add to that what I'd heard was that if you think of it, a puppet is, is uh, to an actor the way a poem is to an essay. I mean, basically, it's like a piece of poetry. It's just taken a few lines of all this information and made it into one visual piece for you. Well, Roman, you direct what would be seen as conventional human theater. You create works which are specifically puppet theater to this issue of making the choice because you've done, if I, if I read your biography correctly, you have done work with puppets from what are considered conventional works of dramatic literature. How do you make those choices? Well, I'm not so, mu I'm not so much sure that it's really a choice. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, I mean, I think, I mean, to me, puppet, pu the puppet is a very, very uh, uh, seductive theatrical medium. And it's, it's uh, I mean, in the same way that a, a visual artist chooses to work with uh, collage or, or watercolor, I, you know, I, I have primarily chosen to work with puppetry. And um, uh, the pieces that I have directed that are uh, from the uh, dramatic canon or whatever uh, have been pieces that, in most cases, I myself have chosen because I saw a certain potential for for my own particular way or my own particular theatrical vision, my way of doing things, which uh, normally does include some, uh, if not puppets per se, what I call puppet technique, uh, which is a pretty broad you know, way of, of describing it. But, um, and um, I would agree, however, that with what Rick was saying earlier, that. Uh, that when we end up labeling something puppet theater, it's because the, the puppet becomes the focus, the, the dramatic focus of the piece. Uh, we were, and to come back to something that he was saying at the very beginning about uh, revealing the puppeteer, I think that's a very, very, uh, that's very critical to understanding what's going on in contemporary puppetry because while uh, traditionally the puppeteer is, is discreet, invisible, uh, in the interest of pre, uh, uh, creating a total illusion, uh, puppets, puppeteers emerging from the from the wings has changed the also the it, it's it's changed the um, the perception of what puppet theater is. Now, in, in, he was describing a situation in which the 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 actor and the puppet are basically doubling uh, in in uh, doubling for one another in terms of tr attempting to present a, a a single character. What um, 
what we did in uh, Dead Puppet Talk, the piece from which the Bill Irwin uh, segment is, is taken, was in fact to try to, um, to allow the puppeteers to be characters in their own right and the puppets, so that while they were manipulating the puppets, uh, at the same time we were trying to push the audience to, to actually uh, credit the puppet with, with its own, with its own uh, uh, life, if you like, with, 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 its own, uh, with its own character, and to see how, to, what, to what extent that's, you know, that's possible. And I think that, for, well, for me, in, in any case, that's the, that's the essence of puppet theater but without removing the human being from, from his, his direct interaction with it, at which point it becomes animation. Uh, I didn't really answer your question today about the... About <laughs> <laughs> but what you say is, is fascinating. I want to pick up on what you said. You commented about, we talk about what's going on in contemporary puppetry. What is going on in contemporary puppetry? What, what are the things that people are looking to explore? Are there... Are there endless new techniques that we continue to find? Are there trends that, that you all want to deal with? Cheryl, you've got such an overview. Um, I'm wondering maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you see or if I put you too much on the spot. Well, I could talk a little bit about our puppet festivals, that we did do these large-scale puppet festivals here in New York throughout the 90s. And we started in 1992 and we did five festivals um, every other year until the year 2000. And we presented, um, I think with the last count, it was 136, 136 different productions over those five festivals. And so it was a very broad range. And our focus really was on um, contemporary adult puppet theater. We always had a, a component for children because nobody wants to leave the kids out. And, and there is some wonderful, wonderful work out there for children. But we wanted to focus the attention on on the work for adults and to really introduce the New York audience to, to what adult puppetry could be. Um, we had seen so many shows, when I say we actually had seen, my father and I and many of us would go to festivals throughout the world and we actually first thought of the idea of doing this particular festival up at a, at a Puppeteers of America festival at MIT when I first met Roman. And we're seeing a, an extraordinary piece by a a German puppeteer. It was a piece called Hermann. It was a very, very simple piece where this very simple wooden puppet completely came to life. Um, so through, throughout the 90s, we were trying to introduce people to a very broad range. And within each festival, we try to have something that incorporates dance, that is coming from dance, something that is coming from visual arts, something that incorporates video, something to really keep the definition of puppetry as broad as possible. Um, and yet to always have a, a strong component of puppetry within each piece. Now, I think that a lot of the younger artists who are now working in puppetry have picked up that broadness and that they do see that the palette is all theirs. They can work with anything, that there aren't these strict limitations of what puppetry must be. It can be almost anything. And I have to say that some of the most exciting young new artists that I see working are working at the Dream Music puppetry program at HERE, which is Basil's uh, program. And there's a wonderful community of artists there. But what you see is that you see them working on each other's shows, but incorporating many different techniques, incorporating video, incorporating music, live sync, and that it, anything goes. And that, to me, is what's most exciting. Well, clearly, Basil, you need to tell us more about that program. Well, that was a program uh, <laughs> initially just uh, 
Symphony Fantastique premiered down at the Here Art Center in Soho in 1998 and uh, inaugurated a new space that was um, kind of perfectly configured for puppetry, a very intimate space. Mm -hmm. And it was really just a program to keep the ball rolling there, to keep that space alive and active. And to, um, I, I had the experience when I had the success of Symphony Fantastique that I had puppeteers coming towards me as I had gravitated towards puppeteers who, uh, whose work interested me. And um, it was, a, and most of them had small pieces that they were developing on their own. And um, so it was just an opportunity, this program, to um, give these puppeteers resources and a venue and a, uh, uh, an, an opportunity to show their work. And so we produced some, maybe just three or four shows a year um, that are puppeteers who I would call emerging artists. So artists who have not had the opportunity to present a full-fledged show and have maybe never worked with theatrical lights or a sound system. Um, but we have that available at the theater downtown. And Pam, when you gather, again, a lot of young, and you also use the phrase emerging artists at yep. the O'Neill, um, are there trends? Are there things that, that these younger puppeteers come out of, come up there wanting to explore, wanting to learn, wanting to... Well, I, it's interesting because it almost is going back. Right now there's a huge interest in marionettes again. And, and for, for a few years, as far as when we were getting out of uh, graduate school, marionettes were sort of very old-fashioned, not interesting. Um, but they've sort, they have blossomed again. We have a huge interest in marionettes. So certain techniques are interesting, but it also is exploding everywhere because we are also including now sort of a video arena, a film arena, because that the whole technique of puppets on film has completely opened up as well. And so it's almost as though the trend is everything. I mean, it's everything is being used and brought into the puppet, puppet world, the puppet field, everything that could be a puppet, everything, every technique from video to theater specialties are brought in. It's, it's very exciting to see because my emerging artists who come to us, emerging artists in our venue uh, present us with an idea. They're, they're puppeteers, like you said, who've maybe never worked with real lights before or had any support. And what we do at the O'Neill in that week, we support the artists. We give them puppeteers to work for them. We give them help in building these things and, and techniques of getting it built. There's a staff available to them to say, why don't you try it this way? This is how it worked previously. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's go in that, you know, that avenue. We'll help you out more. Um, and, but the variety of what comes to us is so broad, from children's theater all the way through very serious works of art. Um, it's a very exciting time in puppetry. I think we are just opening up and being accepted. I think for many years, the puppet field, we weren't necessarily all that well accepted into theater venues. So we were sort of shunted aside. And now it's, it's wonderful. I feel as though we have so much respect going. You mentioned film and video. And I want to mention two things that came up in a discussion I had before, before the seminar with, with one of our staff. Um, you comment about the upswing in marionettes again. and. I can't help but wonder, triggered by this conversation, whether the fact that so many people saw the film being John Malkovich, which opened mm -hmm. with extraordinary marionette work by Philip Huber, um, and in the same way that apparently there are people rushing to forensic science programs because of CSI, <laughs> um, does that, you know, 
Is that a factor when a certain type of puppetry is elevated, just as now we've got, you know, how many thousands of people a week seeing Avenue Q live? Does that affect it? But at the same time, um, in the same conversation, it was pointed out that now, almost 30 years ago, uh, we had this extraordinary character created on film, Yoda, by Frank Oz. And Yoda is now computer animated. So it's, it's the push and pull of an ancient art form that comes up against the modernism. And how much is an opportunity and how much is it something that has to be fought against? Well, I think, I mean, I think every time that a, a major feature film uh, uh, fe featuring puppets uh, has you know has success. There's there's an impact, and it's good for for puppet theater in general. But I I, I think one of the uh, uh, the reasons for the explosion of experimentation in puppet theater uh, has a lot to do with the fact that in the late 70s 80s uh, the the contact with performance art, if you like, and the and the definition or the redefinition of puppet theater as anything anything can be a puppet, which people keep saying here, uh, has uh, made it possible for uh, younger or emerging artists to say, okay, I want to work with puppets, but they think about the show before they think about the technique. And uh, in other words, they're able, they, they, had, they now have the blessing, as it were, of, the, of uh, the critical blessing with which to say, okay, a popsicle stick is okay. It doesn't have to have 15 strings. And, um, and that's that's made it very, that's created a very liberating environment for puppet theater. And I think that what's happened personally after a certain number of years of uh, people experimenting with what was often referred to as theater of objects is the, um, is the rediscovery of, or the, of the desire to, to uh, uh, further articulate the object. So in, in a sense we're rediscovering the, the, the technique and maybe reinventing it each Puppeteer, as someone mentioned earlier, is, is kind of uh, reinventing it in his own way. And that explains the variety, the huge variety of, of, uh, of shows that one can see it that are, you know, under the, the rubric uh, puppet theater. Basil, technology, obviously, I mean, it's, it's underwater technology, plays into how you achieve some of Symphony Fantastique. I mean, I, are people actually on tanks at times when they're, or they're just in wetsuits? No, people are just, just in wetsuits backstage. They don't get in the tank. But the thing about my show, which is interesting, is that it's, is, I am a bit of an old-fashioned puppeteer and that I always, in my shows, I keep the puppeteers hidden. Um, I've, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, have in fact reacted to the um, sort of new wave of um, modern puppetry where the puppeteer is always visible because I, I really loved the total illusion. So, um, so I, in my show, it's very much, well in Symphony Fantastique, it's very much um, a little curtain that goes up on a small proscenium and the imagery happens within that proscenium and you don't see the puppeteers at work. The thing is, though, the imagery is, some people have compared it, it's very much like a computer image, and it's square like a, like a video monitor, and, uh, and looks like maybe your computer screensaver or something, and that's par part of, though, what's so... Um, they don't put that in the ads. They don't put that in the ads, <laughs> no, but the, the thing is, is that it's, it, you, you know that it's live. It's not a film when you're watching it. You know that it's live. You don't need to see the puppeteers actually in action to, um, and, 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 and in fact our show is, 
very much a low-tech show. I mean, there's, there's a lot of lights, but it's really just some stuff on sticks and we're moving it through water. It's very, um, it's very low-tech, um, but it has this, um, it looks something like computer imagery. And I think it's just interesting that you mentioned computer imagery because uh, people make that comparison with the show a lot, except for, and people have also asked me all the time, why don't you make a you know, video of this show? Well, it's not, because it's not a video. It's a live experience. <laughs> and it's too, it's too close to a, to a film, in a way. And what, is, what really puts it in a different place is that there is a live element to it. You can feel the puppeteers at work back there, even though you can't see them. And in fact, I mean, we talked earlier about the presence of the puppeteer and where the focus is. While through the entire experience, you are watching uh, through a very formal proscenium this, this show taking place in a thousand gallon tank. At the end of the show, uh, it wasn't announced, but the curtain was opened and the audience was invited to, to, to peek behind the curtain and get a sense. And in fact, the puppeteers were explaining a bit of how they did some of what they did. Is, is that because we, we, you want people to know more, to understand what they've seen? Is it, is it just to give them more of an experience in the theater that night? I, I, just a lot of people want to see that. I, I don't want them to see it. Personally, I don't want them to see it during the show. Not during that show. That's not my intention. I want them to focus on what I'm trying to show them. But I'm not trying to hide my secrets, ultimately, and people are fascinated by that And in stuff. fact, you're selling seats backstage? Yes, I saw we actually it. are. So, so people who've seen it can then go back and watch how it was, how it was done? You can actually see how the show is happening live. Besides, also, people do get to see the show backstage after the show. But we also offer an opportunity for people to watch backstage. I, I, it is a complete experience. People, I know that people love that and enjoy that, and that's part of what um, uh, you know. That's part of puppetry today. That a lot of people want to know how it's done. There's definitely also people in the audience who come and see the show, and they say, "I don't want to go backstage. Yeah. I don't want to know how it was done. I want to leave it as it is." And I, um, I love it when people say that. Well, and that and that tradition of watching how something is done in performance is not new either. I mean, you know, I'm going to mispronounce it because I always do the Karagios thing, the Turkish uh, shadow puppets. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, they are performed with anybody sitting wherever they want to. They can sit behind and watch the puppeteer perform it if they want to see behind the scenes, and they can sit in front and just watch the screen if they want to. So that's, that's not a new thing. Um, it's very interesting, you know, this, this idea of revealing, you know, or whatever is, 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 is so interesting because there's an, there's an interesting irony about it. A lot of people go to see something backstage or they see a technique revealed and it's even more of a mystery once it's been explained or once they've seen it. I, I loved your father at, on one of, his, one of the episodes of the Jim Henson Hour said, Okay, we're just going to pull back and we're going to see all the puppeteers. And, and there's an interesting thing about, you know, it's why like DVD extras are packed with making ofs, because people love to get that stuff. They'd like to see how something is accomplished. But explaining it and showing it doesn't necessarily take the mystery away. Sometimes it adds to the mystery. Sometimes you just go, that's all it is? How do they make it seem so right. real? So, 
that's an interesting thing. And I also just want to respond really quickly to your, uh, your notion of, of technology and how that affects theater. Because, of course, it always does. And, and whatever current theater technology is available always finds its way into commercial and experimental theater. I mean, can you imagine like when electrical lights first became available to theaters? Wow, what a special effect. Um, <laughs> But there are definitely things that happen because of technology, too. We are such a technology-saturated culture right now. I think one of the reasons that there's been a surge in puppetry is because puppetry, theater puppetry, is real. It's happening in real time, right in front of you. And because it's puppets, it's dimensional. Um, it's very visceral. And I think people are a little oversaturated with, you know, DVDs and TV and computer animation and blah, 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 blah. I think people do reach a point where they get tired of that and something simpler seems innovative. And seeing the puppeteer, seeing the puppeteer at work on stage brings that home even more, that you see that act happening right there in front of you. You see how it's being done and still mm -hmm. you can get lost in it. Or even feeling it, as Basil said earlier, if, even if Feel. the puppeteer is, is invisible because it's, I, I, when you, you asked earlier about the difference between the actor and the puppet, you know, it, normally speaking, a puppet can achieve in, a, in about five hours of work what an actor can achieve in about five seconds. So what that means is that the, the art of it is, is in that struggle to the struggle to achieve that same kind of, if it's, if it's a naturalistic gesture, that fluidity and naturalness or, or the beauty of the, of the moment. And uh, it's not, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult art form. And I think that, that for an audience, it's the, it's the feeling, whether they're conscious of it or not, of the, uh, the struggle to, to produce what the puppet is producing, the visual effect or whatever is, is the real, uh, the real uh, core of the, of the art form. Right, well, a lot of, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just saying, maybe not even the struggle, but the play of it. The tension. Because right, the, yeah. um, my father was always into the playfulness of it, and that it's the fastness, and it's the human aspect of it, and in particular, the hand. That a good puppet performance almost always comes back down to the performance of the, of the human aspect of it, and very often in the hands and what is the hand able to express and to and put into the puppet to be able to create a sense of life. And uh, there's, uh, my, my brother's working a lot now with uh, creating computer-generated characters that are totally still performed by puppeteers and puppeteers' hands, and it's very hands-on so that you get the high technology, but that good performance needs the naturalness and the easiness and the playfulness mm -hmm. of the human human hands. Right. I was it's, say, it's human effort. Yeah, when you yeah. Ad address the technology advancement problem, I don't see it as a problem. It's just more tools for puppeteers to use. We are nothing if we are not pragmatic, and we will take whatever the technology is and we will figure out how to create and tell our stories. Yeah. That's what we do as puppeteers. We love a lot of times we're gadget geeks, you know, we like how little things work, or, and how did that car move across the floor? Well, we'll incorporate that into something else, and then we'll also draw it into learning to make that movement fluid, and learning to make it really look like the animal we need it to be. And puppeteers are real experimenters. The whole thing of whatever you have, make that work. And so if there's some cool new technology, you can bet that there are going to be some puppeteers that are come forward and make it work for them. Because it's really about doing it differently, doing it in a way that it hasn't been done before, and oh, yeah. taking what's available. Yeah, all artists are early adapters, right. or yeah. adopters. They just Definitely. take in whatever's available and use it, you know, uh, whether
whether it's a rubber band or a you know computer animation or whatever. And I and I do want to just qualify what I said. I was responding directly to your thing about you know technology. I, there there is definitely you know pendulum that swings away from it, but it's also very embraced. And I mean, let's just look at contemporary theater in general. Um, if you look at very sort of traditional Broadway musicals now, they're all using video, and they're all using projections, and they're all using you know you know. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, musical programs that you know have scores uh, synthesizers synthesized and and, and um, um, well, what is the word I'm looking for? It's actually not just a synthesizer, but it's actually it actually plays the thing. Uh, uh, oh, and, these virtual, and all the technology, virtual orchestras and all the yeah and all the technology that's involved in scenic stuff now. It's all like computerized. There's not a stagehand pushing something on stage. It's all on you know computerized tracks and all this sort of stuff. So it's definitely art uh, adopts technology and and exploits it for all it's worth. As like as soon as it's uh, is it's available. Well, I want to I want to do an incredibly unsubtle segue. Both Basil and Rick <laughs> have have brought a couple of puppets with them and so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask them to to kind of bring them out because it's in response to something that that Cheryl was saying about that it all comes back down to the hand and when Avenue Q was being developed there were people I know who saw the show and said well it's really cute but how do you how do you put it in a theater I mean it's the thing's still this big and it does come back to what we keep saying, that is, is that it's, it's fundamentally human. With Avenue Q, the show has gone to larger and larger venues. The same has happened with Symphony Fantastique, where, where the scale of what goes on. Um, so does that become a fundamental limitation of working with many kinds of puppets? That's not to say there aren't people who have created enormous puppets. We look at what Julie Taymor has done in Lion King. We look even at the, the Halloween parade here in New York, which really had its roots as a, as a puppet event. Um, but how does scale affect what you do or, or limit what you well, do? Well, certainly there are limitations to, inherent in any particular form of puppet in terms of scale. Um, you can, in theory, make a marionette that is 18 feet tall but the sheer weight of it and the physical exertion that it's going to take to move it is going to be rather extraordinary too. So when you scale up a puppet, the amount of exertion and force and required to perform it is going to exponentially increase as well. Uh, with Avenue Q, the, the puppets that we use, um, and I have a couple here from the show, are very much in the tradition of hand puppets. They're uh, what we call mouth puppets. Um, the puppeteer's hand is, uh, in this, instance, uh, the puppeteer's hand is in the head operating the mouth, and there's another hand on, this is what we call a life hands puppet, and then the puppeteer's other hand is in the hand. And this is normally, I should point out, this, this kind of puppet is normally performed by two puppeteers. There's normally a, a person in the right hand as well. So again, he's bigger, requires two people, it's beyond the scope of one person to, to, to perform. But one of the things that, that I said earlier about puppetry is, it's, again, it's going back to the idea of abstractions. Um, and playing in a big space, Nikki's eye, this is Nikki from Avenue Q, Nikki's eye is the size of the bottom third of a, an actor's whole face. Yeah. So when we first moved Avenue Q from off-Broadway to Broadway, that was a big consideration, will it play in a bigger house? And we literally took the puppets to different theaters and said, can you see it from the back row? 
And the truth is, you can see Nikki's face from the back row in a big theater better than you can see one of the human's faces. Because, so it, because it's abstracted and because the color is bright and, and all those things. Because it's a reduction. It's a simplification. I like to think of this kind of puppet, my sort of design aesthetic is, like, what would Al Hirschfeld do? You know, what's, what's the least information that I can provide that makes the appropriate impression on the audience? Um, you know, his pictures were famous for being so spare. He could take a line like that and, oh my gosh, it's Bernadette Peters, you know, with almost no information. And that's what we're trying to do when we just, you know, design this kind of puppet is what's the least amount of information we can do. But obviously, this kind of puppet is limited by what, how big the puppeteer can be. I mean, uh, this is about as big a puppet in this style as you can use and still have a human being exert it and still have proportions that seem, you know, reasonable. Yes, we could scale up the puppets. We could make their heads a lot bigger to fill a 400, you know, 4,000 seat roadhouse somewhere. But it probably wouldn't work very well because there's something about the relative scale of them that, that works. Um, we have taken the puppets to like award shows and stuff. And uh, yes, they're swallowed up by a barn the size of Radio City Music Hall. Um, but we've done award shows in 2,000 seat houses with our producers sitting in the back row going, I can see them so well. Why aren't we in a bigger theater? Uh. So, <laughs> yes, there are definitely limitations um, to this style of puppet. You, you can only make them as big as a, as a human being can perform them. Um, after and they get too big, they get too in relationship to actors, so it makes sense exactly. that they be. You, you don't want the puppet to overwhelm the actor either. Uh, in this case, in the case of Avenue Q. Now, of course, you talk about Julie Taymor's work mm -hmm. and like the Magic Flute. Have you, have you seen her production mm -hmm. of the Magic Flute? Um, she's got these huge, huge, like 18 foot tall um, pole puppets. But they're manipulated by four or five people. Um, and the ones that are not are like, you know, what we sometimes referred to as kite puppets. They're made out of like ripstop nylon and they're basically two-dimensional on frames. And they are performed by like one or two people because they're so light. But they have limitations to what they can do because they're so big. Um, so every, every style of puppet, every choice that you make about what kind of puppet you use definitely has you know, scale issues that it has to deal with. Well, I just want to say something about the style of the puppets because um, of Avenue Q puppets because they're based on the Muppet style. And if you go back to when my father first created the Muppet style back in the 50s, um, he created them for television. And it was actually the first time that puppets had ever been designed specifically to be performed on television. Before that, Kukla Fran and Ollie or Bill Baird's puppets, um, Howdy Doody, were puppets for the live theater that then made it onto television. So here he was creating a new style of puppets just for television. And that's why it, they were so, so simple. And it was back in the 50s when television was all black and white. In fact, the anchors would wear dark lipstick and dark be, because to accentuate their mouth so you could really see them speaking. And so he was actually the first person to do lip sync. Before that, when a puppet would talk, it would just go all over the place, um, like the alligator and Kukla Fran and Ollie. But the Muppets were the first ones that would actually do it right to the words. And that, that was about the television. So now it's really interesting to see that now gravitate back to the live theater. <laughs> so I think it's sort of interesting. Another thing about a scale, um, so the puppet that I brought is smaller. Um, and just to say that 
as we were saying, a lot of puppeteers um, start out because they want to be their own performer, their own stagehand, their own <laughs> hair and makeup person, their own <laughs> playwright and, uh, and, and builder. And it's sort of the idea of, I mean, I know I used to do shows like these and I still um, sometimes perform by myself. And it's nice to be able to perform by yourself. It's the, the thing of a puppeteer being able to control their own universe and present it. And having it be miniature makes that possible. So that's part of why so much of um, a lot of puppetry we see is miniature. And I also just, I, there's, there's a great appeal to the miniature and to the intimate experience. Um, there was a show we just presented down at the Dream Music Puppetry Program that was for only 25 people at a time. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's a very special theatrical experience to have that, to be um, in such a small space with a small number of people focused on such a small thing. It's very different. It requires a very different kind of concentration um, uh, than being in an enormous house. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's just well, a... Can, can we see the puppet that yes. you brought? Because I, I need to, to say, uh, just to share with everyone while you're, while you're getting it, um, we had Paula Vogel with us a couple of weeks ago and, and mentioned that you were going to be doing it. And she immediately said, oh, he must bring, and I'm not going to remember the name right, so you'll tell us the name of the puppet. Um, but the idea that she had seen a particular puppet that Basil did and said, oh, you must see this. Now, there is a huge world of puppetry. We've very casually, there have been a lot of mentions of different kinds of puppets. We're only representing um, two here. But so, yeah, this is a, obviously a very different kind of puppet. This is a string puppet. Um, his, uh, he's called Stickman, is <laughs> his name. And, um, and uh, he's a very, um, I don't know, a, a basic uh, string marionette. Um, uh, marionettes are, it's, um, it's it's wonderful that there is more of an interest in, in marionettes right now. It's a um, a really um, <laughs> difficult technique. It's actually a little tricky doing it on this chair here, um, and it's wonderful to to know that there are so many people who are interested in technique because uh, there was a lot of puppetry for a while with popsicle sticks, and not that that doesn't take enormous technique itself. But this is a this is a uh, a technique that takes a long time to learn, and it's an old tradition, the string puppets. And um, one of the best things, of course, a string puppet can do is fly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and a beautiful thing about a string puppet is that it's got, it has its, um, it's separate from my hands. I mean, my hands are obviously working, but there's, I can have an experience with this puppet where I can really sit and, um, and watch him, like from a distance because I have a distance from him. I don't have my hand right in him. And so in a way I can do some, um, I have even more opportunities to perform uh, with this puppet. I can relate to him and, um, and use him in ways where I'm actually in relationship to the puppet and that the relationship between the puppeteer and the, and the puppet, there's a, that, uh, that metaphor of a, someone bringing something to life. You can see that actually happening. God. Yes. Mm. And it also bespeaks why you use a puppet, because puppets can fly. Making a human being do this would take hours in a theater, <laughs> lots of money and lots of you know, flying rigs. Right. But to get the visual 
then you make the choice to use the puppet. And talk about what we were saying before about the, the physical, the human effort involved. Now, if we took that puppet away and we showed you Basil's hands just going like this, it probably wouldn't. I mean, it might be interesting, but it wouldn't <laughs> add up to a whole lot. And what I, was just, what I was just doing with Nikki is this. It's very subtle. Well, Pam, and haven't you worked on a children's show? Yeah, we've a show called Ubi, which is just eyeballs on the top of the, uh, mm -hmm. the hand. It's the bare hand talking to you with just eyeballs looking at you. And uh, actually, children love it. They sit at home and do this themselves, apparently. <laughs> they talk to their own hands, <laughs> which is great, you know, the start of puppeteers. But that's what it is. Looks, that's one of the, that's one of the, you know, we touched on it earlier. One of the great things about, and well, why do puppets appeal to children? Why, why does that happen? Why, why is it not just a thing for adults? I think it goes back to that abstraction, that reduction, that simplification. Children glom onto symbols and abstractions like we just don't comprehend. So when this thing that we've created, full of abstractions, reductions, and everything, is presented from a kid, they frequently grab onto the and recognize it from a visceral point of view that we just don't know. And so I think it's easy to see why kids are attracted to puppetry. It's for all the same reasons that we are, without all the intellectual BS that goes with it. Yeah, actually I have a two and a half year old daughter who is an active puppeteer and I think that <laughs> most little two and a half year olds are because there's something about just picking things up and giving them characters, giving them voices that is so human. And it's a little bit about controlling your environment. It's a little bit about um, getting what the play that's going on inside your head out um, for somebody to share, to have an interaction with somebody else, to have an imaginary friend. But it is so natural and it's so immediate. So when you're first asking, how do people come to puppetry? What an odd road to follow. It's more like, how do they come back to it? Because so many kids have it. Right. Well, it's kind it's of it, at that level for a kid to be performing. It's an, it's an empowerment. It, yeah. I mean, it gets all into that, you know, is, exactly, it's control. And it's sort of like, you know, as, as you start to intellectualize these things as you get older and you talk about, you know, adult theater and stuff like that, you, get, you wrap up on all these mind games about, well, it's Frankenstein and you're creating life from the lifeless, blah, blah, blah. But it, it happens at a much more sort of elemental and essential place than yeah. that. And she was putting her hand inside of puppets and insisting on performing them from when she was like one. And so it's a very natural thing. She doesn't pretend that it's a lot. It, it's like the difference, she knows the difference between when it's being puppeteered and is it alive. It's, it's totally part of human nature to understand it and still want to do it and be a part of it. That suspension of disbelief uh, that is just yeah. natural to children. They just believe everything, whereas well, we, we pull back But they also want to do it to self, yeah. self, yeah. you know? Well, and it's, you know, I, I've also used the phrase willing suspension of disbelief, but I love, it was in about a year ago, I think, the Village Voice, this interview that you participated in, and what I loved about the way you said it was, it's not really the willing suspension of disbelief, it's the creation of belief. Or the, mm. or the continuation of belief. It's just believing, be, what, being what? able to look at something. And it's yeah. actually something that Paula Vogel said. Um, mm. And I'd love to talk a little bit about sure. that show. But she just pointed out, it's not the suspension of disbelief. It's that you're looking at that and you're believing in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, even though I can see it's on your hand and I can see <laughs> that and how amazing that is. And, um, I was really lucky to work with Paula on this show, The Long Christmas Ride Home, which had puppeteers visible, and, um, um, but there was a really interesting uh, sort of setup in that show, and I think it also speaks to why puppetry um, 
is popular nowadays, or a lot of use in puppetry in a larger theater piece, is the idea of, um, a as we started to point out to puppetry as a metaphor. And the, in Long Christmas Ride Home, there were actors who used puppets that looked like their childhood selves. Um, and the puppet, the, the actor, puppeteer, character, um, stood behind the puppet and simultaneously as they were animating the puppet and bringing it to life, there was an act of them witnessing their own childhood, retelling the story of their childhood. They were being storytellers of their own past. They were also witnesses to it, uh, you know, uh, someone who was just observing what was happening. And, um, and I think there's lots of uses that we're seeing, for example, in The Lion King, my interpretation of a lot of the magic of The Lion King is the joy of seeing not just the story being told, but seeing people telling a story <laughs> being told. It's not just the, the, the story of a lion, it's the story of people, there's people who are telling the story of this lion and they have these fantastic costumes and these things that they use to tell this story and it's a theatrical event. The storytelling itself um, becomes, uh, I, I think it's uh, being used a lot. In, and, in, and it is totally a theatrical convention. If you took the Lion King production on Broadway and put it on video, it would not be as compelling and it no, would not be not. as interesting. You'd rather watch the cartoon. Because, and it's the same way with Avenue Q. Avenue Q is not a television show. The, the conceit is so theatrical, having the puppeteer and the puppet on stage at the same time, it's so theatrical that you really cannot take it out of its theatrical context very successfully. Although it looked great on the Tonys. I want to come back to Long Christmas Ride Home because that is a play where, where in production, obviously, there is the choice that the childhood uh, selves were puppets manipulated by the actors who then, when it flashed forward to, to what were actually more present day scenes, the puppets were gone and those people played. Had Paula conceived that immediately, or was that a directorial concept? Wh where did that choice come from? And then I have a second question. Um, well, a, a, just a third part of that show was, was that they, ultimately, then the puppets were brought back to them. Right. And I think that was, in my sense of the show, that's really what almost the entire show was about, was this moment when the puppeteers start with their childhood selves, then they play their adult selves, and then the puppets are brought back to their arms. And um, that, I feel like that, that that was the moment that Paula was really creating mostly the play around was the, when the puppets were brought back, when, the, when the, those um, characters went back to their childhood selves, once we'd gone through their entire journey. And that was Paula's choice, that was the playwright's choice. Um, it was, uh, she had been fascinated by puppetry for a while and um, also by Japanese theater forms and uh, Japan has a um, venerable puppetry tradition um, that is really, it's almost its highest theater tradition in Japan and, um, and so she felt that was appropriate. There were Japanese themes in the show and, um, and it was an appropriate technique for that piece. And of course, because you were, you were working with actors who were not necessarily puppeteers. 
No, that's you, right. And, and I'm curious to ask both, both you and Roman, because Roman, as you say, you make choices. You don't look at the definitions. You may do pieces where you incorporate puppets. They may be solely puppet. Um, obviously, we've just been listening to people who've spent lives immersed in puppetry. And then what happens when you get to the situation? Do you find you have to make a choice of, I need an actor, I need a puppeteer? Rick is obviously achieving both. Is that common, or do you find yourself training people for one or the other? Roman, I'll put you on the spot first. Well, I think, I mean, the, the choice is dictated by the, the necessity in the, within the production. And, and yes, if you decide, I, I, this, this, I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about character-driven pieces. And uh, so if you say, well, the character is, uh, in my mind, best represented by a puppet or a puppet cum puppeteer or a puppet cum actor or, you know, whatever, or just an actor. I think it's, you know, the choice should be dictated by the, by the, uh, the production itself. And um, uh, yes, it's often the case that I've, I've often worked with actors who had no prior puppetry experience. And uh, I've, you know, consequently adjusted my sights in terms of the, you know, the level of uh, technical proficiency that I expected them to have in terms of accomplishing something that would still be finished and, and perfect for, you know, for an audience and not just look like a simulation of something that could be better done if a trained puppeteer uh, stepped into the role. And um, uh, it's interesting to work with uh, with actors who, I mean, it, it takes, it's, there is a mindset that an actor has to have, a certain kind of open-mindedness, I guess, uh, to the idea of expressing something through an object or thing outside of themselves. There is always that, that element of detachment that Basil was talking about when he was doing the stick man. And um, uh, so you, you, see, you see you're doing it and you see it at the same time. And one of the more difficult uh, uh, things to achieve also with, uh, with, I would say, most actors, I'm generalizing, of course, but is uh, to uh, get them to a point where they understand that they don't have to do it all, that they don't have to express every, you know, express facially, for example, every sentiment that's being communicated because the, the, the figure is there as well. So, um, and to find the balance between what they're giving to the to the puppet figure and what they're doing themselves. Otherwise, the, the result, which, is, which is, uh, is tragic, is that you just you see an actor acting but holding a thing in his hands. <laughs> and uh, and that's, you know, that's what, what you're trying to, to achieve is what we've talked about earlier, is, is transferring the focus from the performer himself to, to the figure. And in my experience, if the actor can do it, the audience will follow him there that if he can successfully uh, develop the necessary psychology or whatever to, to, trans, to uh, uh, transfer his performance to the object, the audience will similarly focus on, on the object or the puppet. That's just when, uh, like for uh, Long Christmas Ride Home, it was key to make puppets that were simple for people to work so that they weren't um, bogged down by the technique. And once the basics of the technique, it, it is best to have something where people can use their hand because we're so used to that as children, maybe moving things with their hands and bringing 
things to life as we tell stories. So I tried to make a puppet that was stripped of as much uh, technical difficulty as possible. And, um, and then just trying to coax that out of the actors to, um, to believe in what they were doing. The moments when you could see moments when they were watching their own puppet and they, they kind of fell for it. You know, they fell for the thing that they were doing. And, um, and I would encourage them whenever I saw that. And, um, so, and I feel that almost anybody has that capacity. Um, uh, some people are blocked <laughs> because they can't, um, they can't put something in their hands. They're maybe so present in their bodies, some actors or dancers. I find that I've worked with musicians a lot who are good because they're used to transmitting th things through their hands. But um, that being said, still, there's nothing like a good puppeteer. <laughs> a good puppeteer <laughs> really has skills in those right. shortcuts and a real facility for entering into um, that puppet mindset immediately. There are certain people who just get it. And, then, and you know when you work with a puppeteer, just gets what it's about. Because it's a lot about, as a working puppeteer, it's about sublimating yourself and your ego and what's going on with you and putting all of that into the character of the puppet. And some actors who have trained a very long time to have the right body and the right look and the right movement in their faces, losing all that training is almost impossible. And they just can't make that transition into, this is my puppet, this is who I am, this doesn't exist, this is what I'm talking about. Mm. Very hard for some people to do. Oh yeah, it's very tricky. Well, but but it, it also, it, it goes down to people's personal proclivities and what they can do. It's, it's not all that different from casting any other show. Because in every show, there will be something that the actor has not encountered before. You know, oh, you're going to be walking on stilts while you're singing this opera. Oh, okay, I'm not comfortable with that, but I'll try. Uh, so, or, or you're going to be performing this and your makeup is going to be bright red with spots. You know, um, so it's, it's like that leap of faith sort of always exists. But yes, it's, it is difficult to cast an actor without previous puppet experience to perform with puppets frequently. Uh, the, the ones that seem to do best are the ones who have um, a very, uh, are very in touch with their physical selves. People like Bill Irwin, people who have physical training, and that's part of what they are. Dancers are frequently dancers. very good puppeteers. As you said, musicians, it's a, it's a, mm. there's a lot of comparisons between performing with a puppet and playing an instrument and going outside of yourself and letting that, that other thing do its expressing for you. We're really down to our last few moments. I want to ask Cheryl, again, given your overview, where are the places, can you just tell people, our viewers, where to, where to look for puppetry, where to find it? Um, here in New York, what are the centers to go to? We've heard about here and Basil's program there are, are there particular places that people can, can look for the information? It's still a little spotty. Um, La Mama just had a wonderful puppetry series where they had eight performances that were extraordinary at La Mama. Here just did three. Um, I, you can always check our website at hensonfoundation.org and we have a puppet happenings listing there that does try to, to have the, a, a good listing of what's happening in puppetry. Um, but there is not one puppet theater that you can go to all the time. But hopefully, more and more, more and more theaters will include puppetry. But but there are resources out there, and people can look for it. They can 
for information on the O'Neill's program, they can go go there. Here, I assume, has web information. Here.org, all very easy. And Rick, your own work at Mm -hmm. lionpuppets.com. So there are all of those opportunities. Roman, anywhere that we can look to track uh, what you're up to next? Ah, okay, well, we will get there. Um, I have obviously revealed the biases and the limitations of coming to puppetry uh, late in my life, but as I said at the beginning, it is really remarkable what you all achieve, what you support, and the horizons that are opened up by this form, which even in talking today, it's, it's pretty clear we shouldn't try to define it as any one thing and just incorporate it into our concept of performance, of theater, of art, of creativity. And I thank you all very much for, for opening these avenues up to us through this discussion and in all you do. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having